Hello, friends. Uh, we are really, really happy to have you here today for another episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast, which, as you know, is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. I am Mary Beth Gassman. I'm a professor at Rutgers University, and I am really excited to have the amazing historian Ellen Schrecker with us today. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you very much. Thank you. And um, for those of you who don't know, um, Ellen has a wonderful, wonderful new book out called The Lost Promise, America's Universities in the 1960s. And um, we are here today to talk to her about this book, but also to talk to her about all things colleges and universities and academic freedom and activism and lots of good uh, good things around free speech, et cetera. And, um, and there's probably nobody better that I know of who can talk about these kinds of things. So we're going to start off uh, with a question. And that is, Ellen, um, can you share, uh, just for people who might not know that much about you, a little bit about your background in terms of, you know, how did you begin to write about colleges and universities and academic freedom? Okay, I started out because I was teaching a little course at Harvard about the 1950s, discovered there was nothing about McCarthyism that I could assign my students. I'd grown up during that period. I knew it was important. So I decided to write about it. And then it's a big subject. It was the worst moment of political repression in American history. Um, the longest and most wide-ranging moment, and um, yet there was nothing about it that explained it. So uh, I decided I'd look at it within a single institution. I was teaching, so I decided to look at universities, and that's how I got started, uh, because I kept uh, looking at academic freedom, universities, free speech. I did another book on McCarthyism. By the um, late uh, 1990s, I had already written several books about McCarthyism and I was tired of the subject. I took a job, a uh, part-time job, uh, editing the magazine of the American Association of University Professors, an organization that's devoted primarily to the protection of academic freedom. And so I became very interested in contemporary issues of academic freedom and have remained so ever since. I started writing a book about it back it, around the turn of the century. Uh, and discovered that there was nothing about the 1960s. Nobody had written about the academic freedom mm -hmm. in the 1960s during a period when universities were dominating the headlines. Oh, my gosh. So um, look, I was looking for another project to write about, and I immediately focused on the 60s and uh, have learned a great deal about what is causing some of the really terrible problems today with regard to academic freedom and free speech on campuses. 
All right. Thank you. Thank you for um, sharing all of that. It's um, sometimes I'm uh, whenever you, you know, before we've talked and you've mentioned that nobody was writing about that time period. And I'm always baffled by it because it's just such a important time period in in uh, the history of colleges and universities. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm I'm curious. Um, so your new book, why are why did you decide the, to write this book now? And, um, you know, what why, why why is this book important and and why did you decide to write it now, I guess? Well, um, I was, as I said, following what was going on. I began the book way back in uh, 2012. And to make a confession here, I have <laughs> to say, I was really just looking for something to write about because my late husband had a terrible case of dementia and okay. I just had to get out of the house. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry about that. I'm so sorry. Well, anyhow. Um, but what I've discovered after learning about the 60s and the consequences of what happened in the 60s for uh, contemporary higher education, that this book about the 60s um, has become increasingly more timely. That when we look at American higher education today, uh, we're looking at an institution sort of perched on the edge of failure. But in the 1960s, people talked about it being the golden age of American higher education. Uh, uh, universities had an aura. They were popular. Uh, if you can believe this, state legislatures wanted them to expand, wanted to give them money, wanted them to grow, wanted them and uh, threw money at people. Uh, they were, uh, the baby boom was coming and colleges were expanding to try to educate them. Uh, this was a moment, the 60s, when uh, there was the feeling that Perhaps the United States could create a system of mass, uh, low cost, high quality public education for anybody who wanted it and who could take advantage of it. That was the mm -hmm. dream. That was the promise. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so another thing I noted in... Um, in, in reading your book, which I really, really would recommend to people, I, I loved it. I've read most of your work over the years because you're someone who, you know, I really looked up to all the way from the time that I was a grad student. But um, uh, and one thing you note is that most people, most of us have this image of colleges and universities in the 1960s of sort of rebellious students and these tenured radicals and administrators that tended to buckle under pressure, but you, in this book, you tell such a nuanced story and a, and a very complicated story. And I guess I'm really interested in, you know, how did you approach this research and what surprised you and maybe, you know, why is what you found really important now? Yeah, well, I began the book uh, as a very different book than the one that I started. I was going to write uh, a kind of account of left-wing faculty members in the 60s. All my 
uh, sort of immediate peer group were left-wing faculty members in the 1960s. People uh, of my age were beginning to write their memoirs. Well, I didn't think I'd uh, done anything particularly interesting in my life uh, and didn't feel like writing a memoir, but I felt my group had that this was something that should be written about. So uh, much of my original research was basically interviewing my friends. And, uh -huh. um, I really was looking at the 60s from the perspective of the faculty. How did it change? How did new ideas enter? How did people with different politics uh, affect the university or were affected by it? And um, then I realized I couldn't limit this to just faculty members, that I had to do a kind of institutional history and look at um, the whole picture. And so this book kept growing and growing and growing as I looked at the ways in which um, universities had expanded, how, how they had become involved in uh, sort of the major developments of that time. And basically what I was looking at was um, how I was writing a political history of higher education in the 1960s. How did universities respond to the main political issues of this period? And it was a very turbulent uh, period indeed. So I'm looking at universities in the context of the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. in the context of the um, Black freedom struggle, in the context as well of toward the end of the 60s, a uh, crisis in American capitalism, a crisis in the American economy. And all these things together began to undermine that aura that higher education had during its very brief golden age. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Um, and for those people who haven't read the book yet, please, please take a look because there are all these amazing stories in it. And um, one of the things that I really love about your work, Ellen, is that you're, you're an amazing storyteller and you get these interviews with people who are just so, so um, interesting. And that's one of the my favorite things in, in reading the book. Um, I guess one thing I wanted to ask you is... Um, do you think just given given your past work, given this new book, um, you know, I was always taught as I was becoming a professor that the university is supposed to be a space that's really an open space for ideas. And I'm wondering, just given what you know, um, do you think that idea is going away? And um, I, I, do, you, do you worry about that at all? Or do you think that you know, the, the universal kind of shake out and will higher ed will continue to be a space for open ideas, or maybe has it never been one and I've just been fooled? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. That's a, I think it is. Um, whether it can remain that is unclear. One of the problems, and it's, it's less and less. So for, uh, dare I say it, material reasons, hmm. uh, after all, uh, we're dealing with a institution that
that uh, somebody uh, noted was really um, dominated from the late 60s and early 70s by austerity, by a, a concern with uh, financial survival in a very tough and competitive world. And what that meant was that opportunities narrowed, that um, when I went to graduate school, which was in the early 60s, they were throwing money at you. I mean, I wasn't even planning to go to graduate school. I was going to be a high school teacher. But um, I was put up for a fellowship. And I said, oh, if I get a fellowship, then I'll go to graduate school. And I did. Uh, but that kind of generosity, that uh, affluence, as it were, that the uh, academic community had as an institution disappeared very quickly. And people uh, had to really scrounge and uh, think uh, in very short-term ways mm -hmm. about how they could position themselves in the market, uh, how they could get ahead. Departments, when they're thinking about uh, tenuring somebody, uh, tend to uh, want to quantify things, want to uh, tell people, you know, so many uh, articles in a uh, certain kind of journal will be good for you. Yes. And um, I think of my own career where I got uh, tenure pretty quickly as having avoided that situation. It took me 10 years to write a book. That wouldn't happen today. You wouldn't have the luxury of sort of changing your topic in the middle as I did. And I think that's uh, sort of narrowing that uh, a feeling of um, open-endedness, as it were, that's pretty much gone, except at the highest echelons of uh, the elite institutions. And I think that's sort of tragic. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it, it feels a little scary, I will say, especially, you know, uh, as someone who, uh, mentors a lot of young folks who are coming into being faculty and just kind of wondering what kind of environment they're going to end up in. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, I guess another question I had, and hopefully this is, I, I assume this is something you think about a lot, but how do we convince people that free speech protects all of us and that academic freedom is essential to the academy? And, and in asking that, I'm assuming that you agree with me. So just based on what you've, uh, what you've written. But. I basically agree with you, but I want to uh, qualify what your assumptions are. Good, because good. there is a difference between freedom of speech and academic freedom. And that is simply not understood, including mm -hmm. by many academics themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, freedom of speech allows anybody as a citizen mm -hmm. to speak out on any topic. It doesn't um, mean that that person uh, has anything valuable to say, right. uh, but the idea is that somehow in this uh, very idealized marketplace of ideas, which doesn't take into account uh, the resource 
resources, economic resources that the speakers may have is uh, somehow equitable. It's not. But the academic freedom is not for everybody. Mm, yeah, academic yeah. freedom is essentially a belongs to the universities themselves and especially right. to their faculty members. And there's a big fight or there was between the notion of individual academic freedom and institutional academic freedom. Can you say more about that? Can you say- What that means is the idea academic freedom itself allows professors in their classrooms, in their research uh, about those issues that they are have expertise on, uh, not to be constrained by outside politics or money or whatever might constrain them, and allows them to sort of say not whatever they want, but whatever they can support. And uh, that allows the rest of us to trust them. Mm, yes, and that's yeah. what academic freedom is for. It's to create a kind of protection so that the rest of the community can feel uh, safe in uh, trusting what's coming out of the universities. Now, what's happened recently is that um, there's a... Uh, rather malignant identification of academic freedom and freedom of speech that has been pushed. And here I'm going to use a word that I hate to use because it really depresses me by a kind of right-wing conspiracy Mm, of a bunch of think tanks, a bunch of uh, very uh, uh, libertarian business tycoons who are trying to eliminate the power of the state and are attacking mm-hmm. a higher education as a result because they're making charges. For example, they're supporting climate uh, change denial. Well, um, that's not a controversial issue. You have free speech to talk about, oh, you know, uh, climate changes are occurring because there are sunspots, which is not true. But um, you can't get protected by academic freedom to deny science, to deny the findings of, you know, decades of uh, research that is based on hard evidence Mm -hmm. that can be replicated by your peers. That is what academic freedom protects. It does not protect uh, somebody, say, who who may have an academic job, but who thinks uh, that climate change doesn't really exist. Mm -hmm. That person cannot be cannot appeal to academic freedom to protect what he says about um, climate change in an academic setting. And it's, you know, taken as a kind of privilege. The outside world doesn't understand this and thinks that anything anybody says is the equivalent of what a professor says in that person's field of expertise. And that is 
very, very damaging and has been propounded um, really since uh, the 1970s by these right-wing think tanks and journalists and writers. And it's uh, mm, yeah. really a disgrace. And these people know it. Yeah, it's really scary, too. So it's it's very scary. Thank you for explaining all of that, too. I think that it's really, really important because I do think that sometimes faculty do believe that they're completely um, uh, protected um, with regard to free speech. But really, there are there are um, sort of um, conditions to how, you know, it plays out and also um, the how academic freedom plays out. So I appreciate you um, talking about that. One other thing that you do is you in the book, you talk a bit about how colleges have um, lost respect and I'm, and you kind of allude to this a little bit in what you just said, but can you can you talk a little bit more about that and how you discuss the way that colleges lose respect in your book? Yeah, I can, because that was one of the main things you were asking me earlier, if there were some surprises uh, that I found in my research, and that was a big one. What happened was during the 60s, as um, the student movement uh, gained ground, got a lot of attention, uh, there were protests against universities, complicity with the Vietnam War, African-American students felt that the universities that were trying to recruit them uh, didn't really understand their problems. They were protesting as well. Some of these protests became more, uh, what should we say, uh, included civil disobedience. But it all began at Berkeley, uh, where for the, in 1964, during the free speech movement, uh, students, engaged in civil disobedience to force the college administration to allow them to recruit on campus uh, students for uh, outside political activities. Now, that was a major restriction on their political rights, on their free speech right of association. Mm. Uh, They were justified in the content of their protests, but the university administration didn't pay attention Mm -hmm. and uh, cracked down on them. And this was new. And the students then uh, engaged in civil disobedience. They couldn't get a hearing any other way. And this got enormous publicity. It had never happened before students had never protested against their institutions for political reasons. And this is what was happening in the 1960s. They weren't protesting uh, in Washington, D.C. They're protesting in Berkeley. They're protesting in Ann Arbor. They're protesting at Kent State. Um, And that turned the public against them. It also turned a group of professors against them. Professors were concerned. You know, these uh, student demonstrations made it hard for them to teach. The universities were sometimes closed down. It was unpleasant. And I started 
looking at the 60s from a very positive perspective with regard to students. I thought, you know, they're doing the right thing. But I became more, what should we say, judgmental. I thought, you know, what they didn't realize was that how much it was alienating people on the campus and especially outsiders, outside politicians, journalists, and other people like that, and the greater public. So um, what happened was that beginning in the 60s, beginning with Berkeley and continuing really through to the early 70s, universities began to lose the respect of the American people Mm -hmm. because um, they seemed to be out of control. And to a certain extent, they were. What was happening was so new that academic administrators didn't have a playbook. They didn't have any guidelines. What should we do? What would work? What wouldn't? Um, When they brought in the police to clear students out of the dean's office, that made things worse. And it all gets on the nightly news in the front pages. And the American public says, oh, that's horrible. Why Why can't the universities keep these kids under control? And that's... That was what began the decline, as it were, of American higher education. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I just I really appreciate just the complexities and nuance in the response. So uh, thank you. I'm sure people uh, listening will uh, find that uh, interesting as well. Um, here's another question I have for you, which is, um, so you talked a little bit about how, you know, the respect declines, but where does the public get it right in its critique of colleges and universities from your perspective? I think a bit because there was a kind of arrogance that, you know, academics knew what they knew and they had enormous respect. And then some of them went down to Washington, D.C. to advise the government and made a botch of that. I'm thinking of somebody like McGeorge Bundy, who helped uh, intensify the Vietnam War. But um, there was no attempt to explain to the American public just what they were doing. Mm -hmm. You know, the main thing about academics and what came up constantly in my research was how much they loved what they were doing loved their jobs. They loved their research. They loved their students in particular. Um, They loved uh, kind of the freedom they had to spend all their spare time doing their work, Mm. if you can believe it. Uh, You know, they had a lot of autonomy. It's very important for academics to be able to say, okay, now this project is what I'm going to work on. Nobody tells them what to do. Sometimes they may be told what courses to teach, but um, they're not handed a curriculum from the outside until recently. And that's what's changed, that uh, professors have lost more and more control over their classrooms and over their research. But it all began, again, in the 60s with this uh, sort of feeling that universities were floundering, 
that they didn't know what they were doing and why in the world should your Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer support them? And that's an easy thing to understand. But um, unfortunately, there was not a strong set of responses to that question mm -hmm. that yeah. I think the uh, academic administrators, I think were so flummoxed by the troubles on their campuses that they didn't realize that they had to make a stronger case to the American public. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. And you, you just alluded to this, but um, where do you see colleges and universities going in the future, especially in terms of issues of, you know, what faculty can research and academic freedom, but also just the role of the tenured professor? Where do you see that going? Well, we have to say what tenured professor? Will yes. there be tenured professors? Yes. You know, some of these red states are passing laws that uh, are designed to eliminate tenure. And what we really have to realize is that at this point, 70, about 75% of all instruction at colleges and universities is not in the hands of tenured or even tenure track uh, professors. Mm -hmm. but uh, part-time and temporary employees. Uh, we have a gig faculty now, mm. and these people do not have academic freedom in the sense that they are not protected by what they do in class. Uh, if they flunk a student and that student's parents complain to the professor, to the administration, uh, the chances are they may be reprimanded or even fired. Um, we are dealing with a completely different kind of university that is a uh, sort, somebody called it the gig university. Yeah. You know, it's like Uber. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you can get on it or off it whenever you want to as a faculty member, but you can't make a living wage. And this has created such insecurity and has um, deprived faculties as a whole of so much power and power that maintained the standards of what uh, was being taught and what research was being done in the universities. Uh, in other words, when we talk about the decline of higher education, or the crisis mm -hmm. of higher education. And I think those of us who think and write about uh, academic freedom use those cliches, you know, the academic community use those cliches all the time. Yeah. It's not just that people who want to become professional academics really uh, have very little chance of having a success, making a successful career out of it and are going to be frustrated and impoverished and often just have to go into some other line of work, which may be very nice. Um, nonetheless, it's not just the uh, part-timers and the uh, people on short-term contracts, but it's also the students who are suffering. Yeah. You know, if you've got a uh, professor 
who really isn't a professor who'd been hired a week before he begins, he or she begins teaching their class, that person is not going to be delivered as thoughtful, as well-researched, as interesting a class as somebody who has more security, who has been able to prepare, who has been able to think more, who has been able to uh, make better assignments. You know, it is more educationally advantageous for students to uh, wrestle with essay questions, to think about using evidence, uh, to write persuasive arguments. It helps them think better. And that's what we want to turn out, is thinking citizens. But if all you have to do is uh, fill in the um, uh, circles in uh, short, you know, short answer questions, uh, you know, that's not the same uh, cognitive development going on. And I think, uh, you know, this is a serious problem for American higher education, that it's getting dumbed down. You know, I imagine you're seeing it as well that it's become more focused on uh, short-term vocational advantages than on teaching the ability to think straight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which we really need right now, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> we really need that. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I think, you know, I, I always learn so much every time I listen to you, and a lot of what you said makes me want to go back. Uh, the just for listeners, the book is really big. So you have to be aware that it's a commitment to read the entire book. And uh, Well, but uh, one thing is you can read any section or chapter in isolation. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the uh, entire book. And in fact, I um, the next time I teach my History of American Higher Education course, I'm definitely going to assign this book because I think it's just really, really important. Um, so, Ellen, I just wanted to say, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our uh, audience um, today? Yeah, let's end on a hopeful note. Faculties today are under attack. Yes, thank the you. The worst <laughs> attack ever worse than McCarthyism, and I know McCarthyism. Yes. And uh, they have been downsized and demonized, turned into incredibly insecure gig workers and demoralized. They lack academic freedom. But they are beginning to wake up. The current uh, attack on what they can teach the current attack that reaches into their classrooms, which were never touched during McCarthyism really, is waking them up. And there is a campaign out there that I've been fortunate to have some association with that is um, offering faculty members a way to fight back collectively. You can't do it one at a time. Mm and it's asking um, faculty senates, which are supposedly the repres- of the body within most colleges and universities that uh, represent the faculty as a whole, mm-hmm. asking faculty senates to pass resolutions 
opposing these uh, sort of educational gag rules, opposing these new laws that are preventing faculty members Mm -hmm. from talking about difficult issues of race and class and gender in their classes. And so uh, what surprised me was how many uh, faculty senates, when uh, approached by people who have been organizing this campaign to get resolutions passed have been thrilled, have said, oh, thank God we have a way to sort of show our collective power once again. And, you know, what we need, what is desperately needed is the collective voice of academics explaining why we need a free university to maintain a free society. And I think that um, maybe the current crisis is going to push them enough to do that. It's still terrifying. Mm -hmm. The political situation out there is really horrendous. You know, I have no idea if um, this sort of tide of know-nothingness can be reversed, Mm -hmm. but... We just have to hope that it will be. And we have to fight. We do. We do. I'm very proud because I chair the faculty council at Rutgers and we definitely passed a resolution and are planning uh, for this upcoming year to do um, a day dedicated to uh, academic freedom and just really getting people to understand it and explore it and and um, and protect it. So um, so uh, thank you for all that you uh, do and, you know, all your contributions as a historian over the years and, and this new book as well. And it is just been a real uh, thrill for me personally to do this podcast with you. And I hope that everyone listening is going to really enjoy all that you have to contribute and consider uh, going out and um, taking a look at uh, Ellen Trecker's new book, which is The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s. Thank you so much, Ellen. Oh, thank you, Mary Beth. It's been a pleasure talking with you about our common interest in academic freedom. Thank you.